Hello and welcome to the Orb Greatness Podcast, episode 1.11, Cuba and Castro. When I first started developing the idea for this podcast, I had played with the idea of making it the Three C's Podcast and making the subject matter be Che, Cuba, and Castro. In the end, as you know, I decided to create a biography-style podcast with Che as my first subject, but the three will forever remain tied together. Last time we discussed Che's time in Mexico, his meeting with Fidel Castro, and the process of joining the 26th of July movement. This time we finally fully introduce the other two, all important C's of this podcast series. We will first discuss the history of Cuba, primarily focusing on the revolutionary hero, Jose Marte, and the time period since the Platt Amendment in 1901. We will then pivot and discuss the man who would lead the Cuban Revolution and then rule Cuba as either Prime Minister or President until 2008. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. They say it was a courageous thing to do. On his first voyage, Columbus landed on the island of Cuba. It was, and still is, the largest island in what is commonly known as the West Indies grouping of islands. What was Cuba like before the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Morena came calling and introduced the New World to the Old One? The island was dominated by an indigenous group of people known as the Taino. The Taino migrated to Cuba in the 3rd century and developed a strong agricultural tradition. It is from the Taino that the island gets its name. It comes from the word Cuba, meaning where fertile land is abundant, or from the word Cabana, meaning great place. When Columbus landed, the Taino comprised approximately 90% of the Cuban population. The other 10% was comprised of the older Garanhatebe and Siboney people, who were the original inhabitants of Cuba and are believed to have begun their habitation somewhere around 4000 BCE. On October 28, 1492, Columbus landed on Cuba and claimed it for Spain. It is estimated that when he landed, somewhere between 75,000 and 600,000 indigenous people lived on Cuba, with the most common numbers being between 75,000 and 150,000. The first Spanish settlement occurred in 1511, and by the 1550s only 3,000 indigenous people remained, having been wiped out by European diseases, severe treatment, unhealthy working conditions, and suicide. Today, the indigenous population of Cuba is practically non-existent, with perhaps the last few families living in the Sierra del Piral. As the indigenous population disappeared, the Spanish colonizers realized that they needed a new labor force to exploit and started to import African slaves. Eventually, as many as 800,000 African slaves were brought to work on the sugar plantations, though the majority did not arrive until the 18th and 19th century. Prior to that time, Haiti was the primary beneficiary of the worldwide sugar market. But once the Haitian Revolution ended slavery in Haiti and greatly damaged Haiti's relationship with the outside world, the sugar market was suddenly up for grabs. Cuba took advantage of the void and became the largest producer and exporter of raw sugar in the world. The 1820s saw the Spanish Empire lose almost all of its Latin American assets. Cuba, throughout the entire Bolivarian independence movements, remained loyal to Spain. Their economy was intricately tied to the Spanish and they did not want to lose out on the prosperity that they had only recently gained. Cuba would remain a part of the Spanish Empire until the Treaty of Paris ended the Spanish-American War and the Cuban War for Independence in 1898. The United States would continue to occupy the island until May 20, 1902, which is considered Cuba's Independence Day. The Cuban independence movement came in three waves. First, the Ten Years' War from 1868 to 1878. Second, 
The Little War from 1879 to 1880. Third, The Cuban War of Independence from 1895 to 1898. Do not bury me in darkness to die like a traitor. I am good, and as a good man, I will die facing the sun. A poem by Jose Marti. Present day Cuba has three national heroes who reign above all others. Two we have already met in our story, and those two are the two that have a very controversial reputation throughout the world. The hero that is universally beloved rose to prominence and then died fighting for Cuban independence. That man was Jose Marti. The adoration of Marti has reached an almost mythical level of devotion. Last time I mentioned Nico Lopez had described Fidel Castro to Che as the only good thing Cuba had produced since Jose Marti. Marti was a huge point of national pride even before Castro rose to power, and ever since Castro did rise to power, he has used the symbol of Jose Marti to foster support for his cause, and if you were to walk through the streets of Havana today, you would see almost as many murals of Marti as you would of Che or Fidel. That begs the question, who was Jose Marti? Jose Julian Marti y Perez was born on January 28, 1853, in Havana. By the time he was 15, Marti had already published several poems, and at 16 he founded the newspaper called La Petria Libre, the Free Fatherland. As the name might suggest, he founded the newspaper as a way to express his support for the notion of an independent Cuba, specifically to publish his essays and stories to support the revolutionary movement, which had manifested itself in the form of the Ten Years' War. The Ten Years' War is the first of three wars of liberation waged between Cuba and Spain. It began on October 10, 1868, when Carlos Espedes, a sugar mill owner, and his followers declared Cuban independence. Independence was seen as necessary due to Spain's lack of response to Cuban calls for social and economic reform. Specifically, the Cubans wanted tariff reform, Cuban representation in Parliament, judicial equity with Spaniards, and full enforcement of the slave trade ban. Basically, no taxation without representation and equality for most, if you want to be a little more poetic. I will let the rebels describe it in their own words by reading the manifesto, which would have served as their declaration of independence if they had only won. Our aim is to enjoy the benefits of freedom, for whose use God created man. We sincerely profess a policy of brotherhood, tolerance, and justice, and to consider all men equal, and to not exclude anyone from these benefits, not even Spaniards, if they chose to remain and live peacefully among us. Our aim is that the people participate in the creation of laws, and in the distribution and investment of the contributions. Our aim is to abolish slavery and to compensate those deserving compensation. We seek freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and freedom to bring back honest governance, and to honor and practice the inalienable rights of men, which is the foundation of the independence and the greatness of the people. Our aim is to throw off the Spanish yoke and to establish a free and independent nation. When Cuba is free, it will have a constitutional government created in an enlightened manner. We will not get too deep into the Ten Years' War. I just wanted you to understand the beginning and the reasons behind the desire for independence. As the name suggests, the Ten Years' War failed after ten years when the rebels were defeated. Cispedes would die in the fighting, but Jose Marti became a national sensation. Marti's essays and poetry all supported the cause of Cuban independence, but it was a private letter to a friend that brought him to the attention of the Spanish authorities. One of Marti's friends had joined the Ten Years' War, but on the side of the Spanish, in response, Marti sent him a scathing letter for the act of betrayal to his homeland. 
The letter was discovered by Spanish authorities, and Marti was arrested. He was charged with treason and bribery, a charge he would later plead guilty to and be sentenced to hard labor. After six months of hard labor, Marti grew very ill, and he was relocated to the prison on the Isle of Pines for a time before he was exiled to Spain in 1871. He would continue his studies in Spain, earning both his master's degree and Juris Doctorate. The goal of the Spanish was that living in Spain would reignite Marti's loyalty to Spain. The fact that Marti's entire exile was characterized by his unceasing publication of essays and poems that denounced Spain's role in Latin America would show that the goal was unattainable. Marti would leave Spain for Latin America and would eventually return to Cuba, just in time to sign the Pact of San John, which ended the Ten Years' War in 1878. The pact released political prisoners and granted a general amnesty for all such crimes starting in 1868, which included Jose Marti's crimes. The pact also attempted to address some of the concerns that ignited the liberation movement. They granted the Cubans nominal representation in the Spanish parliament, immediate manumission for all slaves and Chinese indentured servants that fought in the war, along with a promise to abolish slavery throughout the island by 1888 which would eventually end by royal decree in 1886. Most of the leaders of the independence movement signed the pact and were required to leave Cuba so that they could not start a second war. The second war started in 1879. It was not as large as the first, though, and failed to gain the same type of support. It ended the next year and is today known as the Little War. After signing the pact, Jose Marti lived in Cuba and applied to practice law, but his application was denied. Without the opportunity to be a lawyer, he instead grew more radical in his wishes for Cuban independence and continued his writing. His writing championed the ideas of liberty and the virtues of independence. His writing, along with the outbreak of the Little War, saw Marti exiled from Cuba a second time. He initially went to Spain, but he made his way to France, where he boarded a ship in New York. New York will be the city he spends the majority of the remainder of his life. His travels, though, included passage to several Latin American countries. He had initially intended to live in Venezuela, where he founded the Venezuelan Review. Venezuela's dictator, though, was not as enthused by the contents of the journal, and he allowed Marti to know it. Marti fled back to the safety of New York. The writing he completed in this time period reveals a deep appreciation for the American Republic, particularly the nation's industry, constitution, and the founders. He, however, warned his compatriots repeatedly of the rising imperial ambitions that would eventually come to characterize the United States' progressive era. You will notice that the majority of Latin American revolutionaries of the next century will rail against those very imperialist tendencies, and in many ways the Cuban Revolution that we will be detailing was more about fighting American imperialism than instituting a specific political ideology. From 1881 to 1895, Marti published many essays and collections of poems. Highlights include Our America in 1881, Emerson in 1882, Whitman in 1887, and Bolivar in 1893. These essays form the framework of modern-day Latin American literature and built the model for Spanish prose that is still used today. His writing has proved so lasting because they exemplified his kindness, his love of liberty and justice, and his deep understanding of human nature. To give you an understanding of the common topics of his writing, from 1975 to 1979, editor Philip Foner gathered and published three different English translation collections of Marti's work. Those collections are titled Inside the Monster, Writings on the United States and American Imperialism, Our America, Writing on Latin America and the Cuban Struggle for Independence, and On Education, 
In 1892, Marti helped form and become the leader of the Cuban Revolutionary Party. He planned to restart the armed struggle in Cuba for independence. One of his main strategies was to use his unique position as a leader of both mainland Cubans and emigre Cubans. The emigre Cubans were primarily located in Florida, but he visited other areas as well to raise money and support. The money went directly toward funding an invasion. Marti realized that playing on sympathies in America could prove a dangerous game. If the Cuban Americans made too much noise, it could have caused the United States to become involved, and Marti was worried that if the United States became involved in the Cuban struggle for independence, that the true outcome of the war would just be to exchange servitude from Spain to servitude to the United States. The arranged uprising would eventually begin in 1895. Since 1868, Marti had been an ardent supporter of Cuban independence and had become a symbol for the idea, but unlike the other leaders, he had never engaged in combat. His writing and character had built his legacy, but his fighting cemented it. Just over a month after landing in Cuba, on May 19, 1895, Marti was on horseback and stated his reported final words, Young man, charge. Marti and the young man fearlessly charged the Spanish in a most heroic two-man charge. Marti did not possess any superpowers, however, and was gunned down almost immediately. The charge gave him his final and most important descriptor, martyr. Over time, the poet-turned-revolutionary became the symbol for Cuban independence and nationalism. The stunning intellectual who had given his life so that all of Cuba could learn what it meant to live free. Marti had captured the Cuban spirit in his writing and then died trying to set it free. After taking power, Fidel used Marti as a symbol of his government and placed himself as the successor of the vision. He points to Marti's writing on the dangers of American imperialism and triumphs the fact that his revolution was the revolution that truly freed Cuba from the outside influence. The Cuban emigres who despise Castro instead point to Marti's writings on liberty and freedom and describe Fidel's record on human rights as proof positive that Castro destroyed the Cuba Marti had fought for. Marti is able to be a hero for all, the man who died for their freedom. Marti's nickname, the Apostle, speaks to just how powerful of an image he has in the roots of the predominantly Catholic island. After Marti's death, the war continued for three years. Scholars disagree on whether the Cubans would have been successful in this fight by themselves. The war only ended after the United States entered the fray in the form of the Spanish-American War. We won't delve into the Spanish-American War, but if you are unfamiliar, this would be the war that Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders participated in and helped to win. It is fascinating in its own right, but we won't get into it today. As part of the victory terms, Spain relinquished all control over Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippine Islands to the United States. This outcome effectively ended Spain's overseas empire. One of the missing terms was when the United States would be withdrawing their military garrison from Cuba and turning over administrative tasks to the Cubans. The Teller Amendment was drafted to address this issue and was a joint resolution from the United States Congress that was passed the day before the Spanish-American War was officially declared. It promised that the United States would not annex Cuba and had been used to dispel the fears of the Cuban people that they would be passed from one imperial power to the next, while it also ensured constituents in the United States that their sugar market would not be forced to compete directly with Cuba's rich market. After winning the war, the United States found it difficult to simply walk away empty-handed. The military stayed, officially to maintain peace, but unofficially to buy time to plan for what would follow. The Army Appropriations Act of 1901 was the solution. 
The act is most famous for defining the terms of independence for the Philippines and Cuba. The part of the act that specifically defines Cuban independence is known as the Platt Amendment. The Platt Amendment dictated the terms for the United States troop withdrawal to occur after the Cuban authorities accepted all seven conditions set forth in the amendment. Among them included the specification that all actions taken by the United States military during the years of military occupation were entirely legal. The ownership rights of the Isle of Pines would be decided at a later date. The United States would become the senior partner in this new relationship and would be provided official permission to intervene in Cuba for the maintenance of adequate government. And the United States would be guaranteed permission to lease land in Cuba for a coal mine and a naval base. If you have ever wondered why the United States has an overseas base in Cuba, commonly known as Guantanamo Bay Naval Base, it all dates back to the Platt Amendment. Cuban authorities agreed to the terms, and U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt ordered the troops to withdraw. The approval and withdrawal set in motion the official independence of Cuba. Independence Day in Cuba is celebrated as being May 20, 1902. The undecided ownership of the Isle of Pines, which as I mentioned earlier, was the site of the prison Jose Marti was briefly detained in, was eventually given to Cuba. Over the course of the next 30 years, the Platt Amendment dictated the terms of the relationship between Cuba and the United States. The unequal partnership angered the Cubans at times, but for the most part there was no open hostility toward the relationship. The next major development was the renegotiation of the relationship due to President Franklin D. Roosevelt's good neighbor policy. The good neighbor policy was not a single policy, but more of a shift in the official foreign policy of the United States towards its Latin American neighbors. It sought to redefine the way Americans thought about Latin Americans and vice versa, with the goal of establishing a strong hemispheric unity. In regards to Cuba, it annulled the Platt Amendment in an attempt to show respect to Cuba's sovereignty. The Treaty of Relations of 1934 between Cuba and America did continue to guarantee the lease of Guantanamo Bay Naval Base and Coal Mine, along with continuing to recognize prior military action taken by the United States as entirely lawful. The annulment of the Platt Amendment was reflected in the 1940 Cuban Constitution, which replaced the 1901 version. The 1940 Constitution was a result of the 1933 Cuban Revolution, which saw Sergeant Fulgencio Batista lead a revolt that overthrew the president. Political and social upheaval followed, but culminated in the passage of the 1940 Constitution and elections that same year that are generally considered to have been open and free. The 1940 Constitution was one of the most progressive constitutions of its time and included provisions for land reform, public education, a minimum wage, right to labor and health care, among others. The 1940 election saw Fulgencio Batista elected as president. Fulgencio Batista was born January 16, 1901. Batista came from humble origins and not much is known about his parents. It is believed that they were both mixed race and fought in the Cuban War of Independence. Batista left home at age 14 when his mother died. He initially worked as a laborer and in odd jobs to make money, until at age 20 he moved to Havana and joined the army at the rank of private. He served honorably for the next two years and in that time learned typing, shorthand, and sonography skills. He then briefly enlisted in the rural police before transferring back to the army, but with a nice promotion to corporal, and he used his newfound skills to become the secretary of a regimental colonel. By September 1933, Batista had gained the rank of sergeant stenographer and worked as secretary for a group of non-commissioned officers. 1933 was a year of turmoil for Cuba. Cuba was still suffering the after-effects of the Great Depression, 
and President Gerardo Machado had become deeply unpopular throughout all of Cuba. Workers were striking, students were protesting, and U.S. Ambassador Sumner Wells was scheming. Eventually, it all became too much, and Machado was deposed in a bloodless coup. Batista's role in the coup was as a leader of what is commonly known as the Sergeant's Revolt. Batista and his group of non-commissioned officers were dissatisfied with the way that they were being treated in the army and had found the path to promotions barred to them for one reason or the other. The group of sergeants were not going to take the injustice lying down, and so they joined the fray. The Sergeant's Revolt was the straw that broke the Cuban government's back, and for the remainder of 1933, Cuba was ruled by a revolutionary government. In that time, Batista became the Army Chief of Staff, which essentially made him the strongman behind the succession of puppet presidents who ruled Cuba in name only. Batista worked with the United States to secure the revocation of the Platt Amendment and the signing of the Treaty of Relations, which essentially made Cuba truly independent and beholden to no foreign government for the first time since the Spanish landed. Batista worked with his fellow revolutionaries to craft what would become the Constitution of 1940 and establish elections for the new government that same year. Batista was seen as a hero to many and announced his candidacy for the presidency. Batista ran for president as part of the People's Socialist Coalition Party and defeated Ramon Grau, who was the candidate for the Authentic Party. Batista won 56% of the vote and was popular amongst a vast majority of Cubans and had been the preferred candidate of the United States. There was also the congressional election were a bit more split. The People's Socialist Coalition won the most seats in the Senate but the House had a total of nine different parties win seats, with the authentic party holding the most of a single party. Despite the large number of parties, Batista's first term was marked by success and the passing of key legislation to enact social reform. Batista also tried to begin the process of positioning Cuba to be the United States' main ally in Latin America. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, he declared war on Japan, Germany, and Italy. He also encouraged the United Nations to declare war on Spain after calling Franco a fascist. The Cuban Constitution of 1940 stipulated a four-year term for the president, and in 1942, Batista was unable to run for re-election as one of the clauses in the Constitution made it illegal. He had grown accustomed to ruling during his six years as virtual leader and four years as named leader. He named his chosen successor and supported the man wholeheartedly throughout the election, but Batista's political rival, Ramon Grau, won the race. Batista was disappointed and reportedly went on a spending spree to try to empty the treasury in a plan to cripple the incoming Grau administration. When he left office, Batista also left the country. He had chosen to move to Florida and the United States because it would be safer. President Grau was initially popular, but the financial instability hurt his programs and the opposition parties badgered him with accusations that he was the kind of populist leader that the Allies had just opposed in World War II. Corruption followed and the Cuban people began to distrust Grau. That did not, however, stop his successor and protege from running and winning the presidential election of 1948. One of the most famous examples of corruption at this time was the Havana Conference of 1946. The Havana Conference was one of the largest and most influential crime summits. It was attended by delegates from most of the major crime families throughout the United States it brought together the United States Mafia and Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian Mafia. We won't go into details of the meeting, but it is a good example of how the country was trending toward corruption and was seen more and more as a great base for organized criminal activity. It was unknown at the time, but Batista was actually somewhat involved in the conference as he was a partial owner of the Hotel Nacional, which was the location of the conference. He would become a friend to the mob when he regained power.
Fidel Castro would be the one to eventually oust the established mafia after he comes to power in 1959. Carlos Prio became president of Cuba on October 10, 1948, and he holds the distinction of not only being the first president born in independent Cuba, but also the last Cuban president to be elected in a universal contested and free election. The 1948 election saw the first real involvement from Fidel Castro. The year prior, Eduardo Chivas had founded the Orthodox Party of Cuba with the intent of running for president. Castro joined the party and assisted in the campaign. Chivas had rose to fame as a radio broadcast host who railed against the corruption in Grau's administration and will continue to gain fame doing the same against Prio's administration. Chivas is seen as an important early influence to Castro's political career, but his influence is not highlighted in today's Cuba due to his vehement denouncements of communism. 1948 also saw the return of Batista to Cuban politics, as he was elected to a Senate seat in absentia. He would then return to Cuba and form his own party, the United Action Party. He was gearing up to make another run for the presidency in 1952. Prio's government continued down the route of corruption and gangsterism. Protests, especially on university campuses, erupted almost daily, and various assassinations led to a further falling of public opinion. The one bright part of the two terms of authentic party rule was that in the post-World War II world, Cuba's economy was booming, and that led to a burgeoning and prosperous middle class. In 1951, Eduardo Chivas was seen as a front-runner in the upcoming election of 1952, due to his platform against corruption and his increasingly popular radio show. As part of his show campaign and role as senator, Chivas had promised to expose the corruption of Cuba's education minister, but he failed to secure the necessary evidence to prove his claims. In response, he recorded his last episode of his radio show, where he warned against corruption and the possibility of a Batista-led military coup. He then made a farewell statement and pulled out his gun. He had planned a grand finale by killing himself on the air, but the shot occurred just after a planned commercial break started. Chivas would survive for 11 days in intensive care, but would eventually die from the self-inflicted wound on August 16, 1951. Chivas's death added more anarchy to an already unstable situation. Batista had hoped that the death of a rival and proof of how deeply corrupted the authentic party had become would be a boon to his candidacy and his action party. But the polls showed that Batista was still in a distant third place. Roberto Agramante had been Chivas's running mate and had taken over the Orthodox party after his death. Agramante was leading all polls by a pretty wide margin. Losing the 1952 election would just not do for Fajencio Batista. So three months before the election, Batista chose instead to seize power in a military coup. President Prio did little to stop the coup, and with opinion of the government at a such a low point, the people at large did little to stop the coup either. Instead, the coup turned into a bloodless one, and Batista was very quickly swept into power. The coup had occurred on March 10, 1952, and by March 27, the United States had already recognized the new government. Batista instituted martial law to establish what he called disciplined democracy. The Encyclopedia Britannica has a video which depicts a newscast from 1952 that covered the revolt. I have posted the approximately minute-long clip to, on the Aura of Greatness's Facebook page if you are interested in viewing it. It makes for a very interesting primary source. Batista's first stint in power had been marked by social reform and efficient government. His second stint in power, which would last until 1959, when Fidel Castro's revolution will successfully depose him, fell far from that mark. In the eight years he was out of power, the country had fractured into political factions, Corruption had grown to a level that it could not be easily ended, 
and Batista's commitment to the people had ended when they did not re-embrace him with the open arms he felt he deserved. From 1952 to 1959, Batista truly lived up to the word dictator. He would jail his political opponents, use terrorist methods to control the population, and constantly work to enrich himself and his friends. In response, protests grew, especially on university campuses. The university campus protest scene is where Fidel Castro rose to prominence. Let's take a moment to introduce the future leader of Cuba. Fidel Castro Ruz was born on August 13, 1926, in Byran, Cuba, to a wealthy sugarcane farmer. Fidel was the third of seven children from his father's second marriage, though Fidel was born before his mother and father were married. Fidel's father had also had five children from his previous marriage. Fidel had a fairly typical wealthy upbringing. He went to private boarding school where he showed promise, but was more interested in sports. His interest in politics did not sprout until he began studying law at the University of Havana in 1945. Fidel has stated that he was basically politically illiterate when he arrived on campus, and to compensate, he dove in headfirst into student activism. He saw injustices all around him. He detested the corruption of the government and the gangsterismo culture. But above all, he despised American imperialism and the way that the Americans were treating the countries of the Caribbean. He ran for president of the Federation of University Students with the slogan, Honesty, Decency, and Justice. He would lose the race, but it brought him to the attention of his peers, and the defeat taught him a great deal about the political landscape. In November of 1946, Castro delivered a public speech that denounced President Grau and his administration's corruption. The speech earned Fidel his first of many front-page periodicals in several national newspapers. In 1947, Fidel joined the newly founded Orthodox Party and campaigned on behalf of Eduardo Chivas in the 1948 election. As I mentioned earlier, Chivas would lose that election to Carlos Prio, but the election cycle brought Fidel even more notoriety. He began to receive death threats after President Grau started employing gang leaders to police the universities known for their protests. Fidel responded not by leaving campus or wilting under the pressure of violence. Instead, he became hardened and started carrying a gun and constantly surrounded himself with likewise armed friends. There have been reports that Fidel may have committed gang-related assassinations in this time period, but those are mostly forwarded by the anti-Castro crowd and they remain unproven. Whether the accusations are true or not will likely never be known and do not materially change the story. Castro learned of a planned expedition to depose Rafael Trujillo, the president of the Dominican Republic, and one who is generally seen as a U.S.-backed dictator. Castro joined what would become known as the Cayo Confites Affair, but the planned expedition was scrapped before it began, and Castro only narrowly avoided arrest for his involvement. His next foray into foreign affairs was when he joined a student group sponsored by Argentine President Juan Perón and went on a trip to Bogota, Colombia. As I mentioned back in episode 1.5, the popular leftist politician Jorge Gatán was assassinated while Castro was in Bogota. He was there to witness the beginning of the Bogotazo riots. Castro famously stole some weapons from a police station and participated in some of the rioting. He is not believed to have killed anyone in the course of the riots, and when things became too heated, he made for the Cuban embassy for protection and transport home. Castro would stay active in university politics until he received his Juris Doctorate in September of 1950. With his law degree in hand, he co-founded a legal partnership and catered primarily to low-income Cubans in an attempt to fight for their rights. He cared little for money and was often unable to pay for his bills. His furniture would be repossessed, he would go without electricity, but he would never go without protesting.
One of the big protests he participated in was one at a high school against the education minister. At the protest, he fought with police and was lucky to avoid jail time when the local magistrate dismissed the charges. He anxiously awaited the proof of the education minister's corruption that Eduardo Chivas had promised. Fidel, like many of those in the Orthodox party, had hoped that firm evidence would lead to the minister's dismissal. Chivas, though, had failed to procure that needed evidence by its promised date, and rather than be humiliated with not having the evidence, he committed suicide. Castro was devastated by the death of a man he considered a mentor, but the death did not diminish his drive for change. Instead, Fidel now pictured himself as Chivas's successor. Senior party officials were frightened by Castro's radical reputation and refused to nominate him for the Senate, but he did receive nomination for the House of Representatives. He was very confident he would win his seat in the election of 1952, but as we know, the election of 1952 would never occur. Fidel had hated Prio's administration and the corruption of the government as much as any other Cuban, but he saw Batista's coup as installing a one-man dictatorship. As Batista strengthened relations with the United States, severed relations with the Soviet Union, and suppressed unions and opposing political parties, Fidel put his legal degree to use by bringing legal case after legal case against the government. These cases came to nothing. Soon he realized that legal change would never come to Cuba, so he made alternative plans. Castro began recruiting for an armed intervention. In the early days, he simply called the uprising the movement. He stockpiled guns, trained for combat, and planned. His thought was to start in the rural and poor areas of Cuba. He figured these areas would receive slower response time from the government, and if they could score an early victory, then the poor peasants would join them. His first target would be the Mancada Army Barracks. His plan was very similar to the one put together by Jose Marti. Castro figured he could position himself as the heir to Marti by emulating the Cuban hero's plan. Soon he and 165 armed revolutionaries were ready to strike. The attack on the Mankata barracks would occur on July 26, 1953. It failed quite spectacularly. The revolutionaries charged the barracks and successfully overwhelmed and killed 19 of the soldiers, but they were quickly pinned down by machine gun fire. Fidel issued the retreat and the rebels fled. They would run away to the Sierra Maestra with the intent to start a guerrilla campaign, but Batista's army acted quickly and the rebels were soon rounded up and captured. Several were cruelly tortured and ranking members of both the Orthodox Party and the Communist Parties were accused of helping Castro plan the operation. Castro denied the help and insisted that Jose Marti himself was the intellectual author of the attack. Castro used his legal education to craft the best way to testify in open court. His arguments were persuasive and the trial gave him the platform in which he could use to air his grievances with the government. He argued that the charge of organizing an uprising against the constitutional powers of the state could not be applied in this case because he had only risen against Batista, who had no constitutional powers. The arguments were persuasive and turned Castro into a national celebrity. Most of the defendants were acquitted, though 55 were still sentenced to prison terms ranging from 7 months to 15 years. Castro was given the 15-year sentence. He would be placed in a prison on the Isle of Pines. He would be placed in a prison on the Isle of Pines, which gives him the mirror of serving his detention on the same island as Marti. The most famous piece of the trial came in Fidel's closing speech at a sentencing hearing. In prison, he had prepared and memorized a speech that is today known as the History Will Absolve Me speech. The speech was four hours long and would later be published by the 26th of July movement as their movement's manifesto. The manifesto called for five laws to be instituted on the island. Number one, 
the reinstatement of the 1940 Cuban Constitution. Number two, the reformation of land rights. Number three, the right of industrial workers to a 30% share of company profits. Number four, the right of sugar workers to receive 55% of company profits. Number five, the confiscation of holdings of those found guilty of fraud under previous administrative powers. I recorded the first and last paragraph of the speech so you can get an idea of the content. But if you'd like to see the full text, it is online and I will post a link to it on the Facebook page so that you can peruse it at your leisure. History Will Absolve Me, spoken in 1953 by Fidel Castro. Never has a lawyer had to practice his profession under such difficult conditions. Never has such a number of overwhelming irregularities been committed against an accused man. In this case, counsel and defendant are one and the same. As attorney, he has not even been able to look at the indictment. As accused, for the past 76 days, he has been locked away in solitary confinement, held totally and absolutely incommunicado, in violation of every human and legal right. I'll now skip to the last paragraph. To you, honorable judges, my sincere gratitude for having allowed me to express myself free from contemptible restrictions. I hold no bitterness towards you. I recognize that in certain aspects you have been humane, and I know that the chief judge of this court, a man of impeccable private life, cannot disguise his repugnance at the current state of affairs that compels him to dictate unjust decisions. Still, a more serious problem remains for the Court of Appeals. The indictments arising from the murders of 70 men, that is to say, the greatest massacre we have ever known, the guilty continue at liberty and with weapons in their hands, weapons which continually threaten the lives of all citizens. If all the weight of the law does not fall upon the guilty because of cowardice or because of domination of the courts, and if then all the judges do not resign, I pity your honor, and I regret the unprecedented shame that will fall upon the judicial power. I know that imprisonment will be harder for me than it has ever been for anyone, filled with cowardly threats and hideous cruelty. But I do not fear prison, as I do not fear the fury of the miserable tyrant who took the lives of seventy of my comrades. Condemn me. It does not matter. History will absolve me. With that speech, we'll end today's episode of the Aura of Greatness podcast. Next time, we will start the process of figuring out whether or not history does absolve Fidel Castro. We'll track Castro and Cuba from the Moncada barracks attack to the launch of the Grandma and the beginning of the Cuban Revolution. Be sure to subscribe as you will not want to miss it. The Hour of Greatness podcast is available on all major podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts, Acast, Stitcher, Google Play, and many others. If you could also take a moment and give the show a rating and review, I would greatly appreciate it. If you have any questions or would like to contact me, you can do so by emailing auraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at TravStory. I also respond to all messages on Facebook, so be sure to like the page at facebook.com slash auraofgreatnesspodcast. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.11, Cuba and Castro. So, until next time, thank you for listening. Cheers.